Welcome to Journeys in Podcasting, threading the learning community within and beyond. This is Journey 3, highlighting Socratic circles. Our in-house study focuses on a series of Socratic circles revolving around the Zilpha Keatley Snyder book, The Egypt Game. Lindsay Twight will walk us through the project. Our discussion today centers around the Socratic method in the classroom. We'll take a look inside a Socratic circle and explain what we learned about the before, during, and after process of the Socratic experience. Then we compare the theory and practices with Circle of Knowledge, a similar Socratic approach to student engagement. Our Beyond Studies include an interview with Dr. Aaron Kuntz from the University of Alabama on the importance of student inquiry, and he will discuss um, his experiences in forming the Disruptive Dialogue Project. Finally, we'll interview James Stortevant, author of You've Gotta Connect. Two of his seniors will interact with three of our fourth graders on the benefits and challenges of being in a Socratic circle. Our in-house discussion is made up of Rebecca Donoso, Steve Albin, Austin Levinson, Natasha Peterson, and Lindsay Twight. This podcast is designed by Natalia Leon, Diego Lopez, and myself, Chris Davis. Let's go now to our circle discussion. I'll try again. <laughs> <laughs> this is a podcast on Socratic circles, and uh, I am Chris. We'll do a quick go around so you know who's in the room. Rebecca. What do you do, Rebecca? What do I do? I am the literacy coach for Spanish. And I studied, studied classical languages, Latin and Greek, and philosophy. So I'm interested in the, in the topic. Um, Steve, a third grade teacher. I'm Nadia, a third grade teacher also. Austin, second grade teacher, interested in making thinking visible. Natasha, fifth grade teacher. Lindsay, a fourth grade teacher. And now Diego, technology teacher for elementary. Okay, so our topic is Socratic circles, and we're just, anyone can jump in here. The idea is just to try to explain a little bit about what a Socratic circle is and maybe how that differs from Socratic dialogue or other Socratic experiences. You wanna... So, um, in fourth grade, the Socratic circle um, is when we were able to get a group of students, maybe four to six students, sit in the middle of the classroom and be able to have a conversation about uh, what we, specifically on a chapter that we had read in a book that we were studying. And so they were able to talk about different themes they found within the book, different um, topics that came out that stuck out to them, and just some things that they were questioning, and basically anything that they wanted to be able to, to converse about and have a conversation, but a really meaningful conversation, while the rest of the students were able to observe the conversation that took place within the classroom. And uh, through that, uh, the students were taking notes on the dialogue that was uh, occurring within the circle and being able to reflect back on those throughout um, or post-Socratic circle. So that was what happened in the fourth grade classroom. Um, yeah. Anyone else done something Socratic-like in, in their classroom? We, uh, I think, set, the, set the, the basis for Socratic circles. We haven't really done them in third grade yet in my uh, reading workshop. But we have we do work with um, a lot of pair share, and we've been working in book club as well, where children are defending their point. And we're not to the point yet where we've got an outside circle and with students observing and taking notes. But we're getting to that point. But we we definitely have um, students taking a position um, on a character or a, a, a theme in the book, and then other students taking opposite positions and then uh, supporting their viewpoints. And it's been really exciting because the students themselves have worked out a way in which they're able to defend their point, and then uh, respectfully listen to the opposite viewpoint. Um, and I like I liked the idea, we were at a workshop with Mary Erin at the beginning of the year, where she had, and I've tried this out, where you have a partner A and a partner B, 
and you ask each partner to take an opposite position and defend it from the text that you're reading and read aloud, and that's been very successful as well. So I feel that, yeah, we have a good basis, we have a good um, foundation for Socratic circles. In yeah, I remember we did, in, with one of your projects before, we did something kind of like a Socratic circle yeah. um, that was a, borrowed from junior grade books where they prepare for the actual event, the circle or the seminar or the symposium, and they go through like five days of just preparing for this event, studying the text from different perspectives, questioning the text, and in that process, I guess a lot of the Socratic stuff is built into just your communication with the kids, training them like, okay, well, so-and-so said this. I would even use it in full group discussion, like as you're doing a read aloud, kind of having that one conversation with one kid. So someone answers, and then you start the back and forth, and you, until that kid just really can't answer anymore, they're confused, or they change their mind, or something, something's really changed, and then let someone else pick up and kind of add to it or disagree with it, but that idea of always kind of like, not just going for that one answer from the kid, but having them, you know, question why they think that, how do you know that, what are your examples of that, and having them fully go into sort of what they're thinking about. And I use, yeah, I use the work that we did with that, to, to fill as the basis of what I'm doing this year. And I find it exciting when you have the students themselves automatically going at each other and defending their positions. And I'm tr I've tried it out in mathematics as well. Um, so I'll have one student say, I agree with your thinking, I disagree. And they go back and forth at each other, positing ideas until one of them says, okay, I accept, I accept what you're saying right now. And so it's really fun, but it's, um, they're, not, they're not willing to necessarily go at each other. And so it's, it, you really do have to foster that. Um, but it's been very exciting to see these kids argue about mathematics and literature. Should we go on? Mm -hmm. Okay. <laughs> um, so this is a simple example, and we're not going to play a lot of this. This is sort of what the examples look like with, with Lindsay's class. And um, assuming this loads. Uh, my favorite is when it says, you need to put on a false identity, trying to look and act like a celebrity. You are who you are with your own personality. That's the way it so just deal with it really. So I think that's important because he, it's like I can connect to it with April when she was making the Hollywood act, when she like talked with other people and met other people. And I think that you have to so I'm going to stop it there just because it's just to kind of get the idea of what's going on. I'm going to let Lindsay go into it maybe more in depth of how what they were actually preparing for in this circle, because I can see they all have post-its and annotated notes. I can also see the kids are back here, um, all doing different kind of scribing activities. I saw one kid coming up and just photographing, and then he's going back to his station and annotating that or, or leaving um, captions to the photograph. Um, there's other, other jobs going there as well. And the teachers are not present in the circle, but they're sort of circulating around, they're trying to help out. So what went into the preparation for that? So the students would be, we were focusing on the book, The Egypt Game, 
And so we were reading different chapters of the book, and uh, we're breaking that down. And so this group in particular was reading a chapter, um, and they had to prepare for it in advance. So a couple of days in advance, they uh, were able to take the chapter, read through it, um, come up with some questions and things, that, some themes that they were noticing throughout the chapter, um, and be able to take post-it notes uh, or, or notes upon on, on the um, the chapter that they were reading to be able to bring to the discussion that we had. And then, as you could see, around the class. Uh, we have, like Chris had said, we have students that were taking pictures, we have students that were drawing out the conversation that was being had and what they were noticing throughout the, um, the chapter that they were discussing and being able to put that in more of a visual um, based, based off of the conversation they were listening to. We had another group that was actually had the chapter in front of them and was highlighting the important parts that they were highlighting as the Socratic circle uh, and being able to annotate that. And then we had another group that was also um, just kind of taking note of the students within the circle. Who was doing a lot of the talking? What were they talking about? What were some of the different um, points that they would bring to the conversation? And so we were able to then analyze what not only was happening within the Socratic circle and what they were talking about and the conversation they had, but also just the activity around uh, the circle. So at the end, like one group um, discussion mapping and just drawing lines of who's talking where. So there's kind of like an entrance who, to get into the circle, they have to have the annotated text. And then when the circle is finished, they wrap up by each group presenting uh, what they felt like they liked, they wished, and they wondered about what happened in the circle using the actual context of the of the discussion. So those were specific roles in the outer circle mm-hmm. that you had set. How did you choose those roles? We just kind of brainstormed some some roles before we decided to do the Socratic circles, and then each day the children would be able to rotate and have a different role. Yeah, we we worked on training them on some of them, like the visual scribe one, we all did as a class one day, so like literally as we did a read aloud, we did visual scribing, that's just literally making a sketch, going on to the next sketch, or on the iPad, finger sketching, swiping, finger sketching, swiping, and at the the end, on the Explain Everything app, you get uh, a linear kind of map of... uh, of what happened in the circle, which was really interesting. We'll come to that in a second in one of the other ones. Um, let me did see. you guys just throw them into that, or did you do, like, I'm, you know, I, I love the management issues, so I always go pair share, pair share, pair share, mm-hmm. okay, and then we get a, a couple more and a couple more mm-hmm. in. We're not a book circle, but did you just, did you, is that how you set them up at the beginning of the year, or you just said, hey, guys, this is what we do, it's a crowd So we set up, we broke the kids into different chapters, um, yeah. knowing, like, and they knew what chapter they were supposed to be focusing on, um, and then they had time to be able to go through that chapter and to just take notes and just to do a lot of different types of readings with it. Individually, they, some of them were able to do it with friends, or a partner, um, some of them were able to do it with a teacher as well to be able to really foster that discussion that we wanted to have within the conversation. But we tried to make it as uh, student-led as possible so that we didn't yeah, influence like them. Um, but uh, So yes, we did make sure that it was manageable for them. and organized. No, and I think the key pieces, like the parts that I would say just integral to doing those is that really pre-think, like, what, do you, what are the main themes of that discussion? Because it might be something you want to spend a week preparing for. Right. When we've done the Dream Great Books discussions, I think what made them go well is, one, we repeated the activity many times. Like, okay. By the time I came to Lindsay's class and worked with them, they had done this a few times, so it wasn't like a new, new thing. Because the first one is always pretty rough. It was supposed to be. What was surprising to me is I'd never done one where we're not in a circle. I've always been there as a coach. And no, I applaud that. I love that aspect. Um, and, you know, I think there's like some serious pros and cons to that as well, but like maybe at the beginning you want to be jumping into the circle more or maybe because you notice that like as soon as um, this kid talked and then she immediately started building on what he was talking about 
And then he probably wasn't listening as closely, and all of a sudden he changed the topic. And so getting them to kind of like really mesh out one topic before you go to the next thing, sometimes I think requires a little bit of, of coaching as well. Well, and maturity too. The students, you know, they're nine, ten years old, and so we're trying to teach them that habit of discussion, like you said, Steve, even in third grade. Or did they have excellent, an excellent third grade teacher, those two? That could have been the case. We did that exact same thing mm-hmm. as we went because I, th- I felt like we were moving pretty fast through the discussions, through the chapters. And so some of the kids the day before their discussion, after they'd already done some annotating, we would meet for about 30 minutes and just go through what are the main themes. Like, um, we were trying to train them into like reading the, a piece of text and then posing the question and then coming back to your ideas. He kind of jumped straight into his ideas, but he got the he at least got the you know whole process in there. But it, but it was really to get them to kind of help them guide into what are the main themes you guys want to bring up, so they're not just kind of theme jumping because some of the circles they would just kind of like immediately jump from thing to thing to thing and never go very deep. And early so circles, that's hard. That scaffolding yeah. is obviously going to make a difference in the, in the yeah. efficacy of the circle and the early, early scaffolding. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How much did this go along with like the mini lessons that you were teaching? Were you tying that in at all, or was this completely separate from any other like reading or writing lessons that you were doing? I mean, we were trying to bring it, especially with the themes, and that's something that we focused a lot on throughout the year. Um, different character development was a huge piece for uh, realistic fiction, and so we were talking about that and what that looked like with the students or the characters in the book that they were reading, and you know, what are internal traits, what are external traits, what are motives that they have, what are just what caused the character to act really There was definitely a, a theoretical framework we always went back to in the discussions because we had kind of things posted on the board. What are the characters doing? You know, they had sort of what their standards were they wanted to work on, and that was always kind of the guiding point we would always kind of return to. So that, that's another thing is like, how open do you want these things to be? And that's when I say like, deciding it, and we'll come up with the, some models and some list of checklists in a second, but like, before you go into the circle, is it going to be an open free-for-all discussing poetry where you want it to be as free as possible, or do you want to go in with some pretty set themes? Like if you're talking about math, then you might be sticking to some pretty concrete themes. If you're talking about historical reasons for something in your social studies, then maybe you're really narrowing those parts down, and maybe you're the one posing those essential questions before you know you go in there. Um, and something too is that these are, like we said, these are fourth graders, and so I think it's something that can, and we only did this within what, three weeks, four weeks? I mean, this was a very short time. So if you were to take a look at the Socratic Circles now and be able to continue to do that for the rest of the year and look at the end of the year, we're going to have very different conversations. No, I'm very excited. And yeah. it's going to be gorgeous. I mean, yeah. even go from third grade to fifth grade, it's going to be really different to look at. So. Oops, sorry. Well, I think challenge in that, as with many progressive or new teaching strategies is how do you look at the curriculum and find ways to peg these new strategies so that they become routines in the classroom and they can evolve. I think that that challenge is one that as the curriculum gets broader and broader becomes a greater challenge for us. It's, it's a big challenge but it's great to see that there's so much happening just for one circle and a lot of that will dictate the success and it's in big part of preparation for it. Like there's so many things you should Consider like how does this fit with my curriculum and what units are coming. Like Lindsay did with her class, there is so much building up to it. And then once you get to actually make the circle happen, then you'll be referring back to those little little things that you were probably studying for months. But that's going to take the, the success of the circle itself. So. Yeah. 
I just discovered that I use it as an assessment. You see, it's my culminating activity. Uh, you, usually if I take a very complex text, like you have to read it very closely. I used to read Antigone by Sophocles in the original with my fourth graders, but only with the high group of guided reading students. And then I did, I did the circle at the end, but with the whole class, because the discussions that they generated with that play permeated the whole class, and everybody wanted to participate in the end. But after three weeks in which you've been reading, you've been discussing, analyzing characters, said, this is the perfect end for that. And I did it very, according to protocol, seven minutes, one circle inside, and the other one listening and taking notes. Then we switched, another seven minutes, and then the whole class in one big circle for 15 minutes at the end. And another thing that I think it's critical, go ahead. Yeah, the questions were pre-designed, always open-ended, and we developed them throughout the process. So I think it can be both. I mean, I think it can be student, very student-generated, but you, I can, it can also be very guided as well. Yeah, and I think right. those are the objectives you would set out for. Yeah. So this particular one also, I mean, the other thing is like how it connects to other parts. Like we're talking about connecting to curriculum or having it be the culminating activity. These discussions were... Um, getting them to bridge into a social studies and art activity where they actually went on stage and then performed. I seem to have the wrong slide there. It's sliding around. Excuse me. <laughs> so let me get back to the right slide and see if I can start that video. Okay. So this is just a quick clip of where this went after the discussions. They went on stage and they kind of. Um, let me stop for a second. <laughs> So you can't really hear what's going on, so I'm just going to talk over it. But they're acting out the Book of the Dead and how a character from the book they were analyzing was taken onto stage and then judged in the Book of the Dead. And so all of this was you know, connecting to dramatic elements, to social studies elements, and to artistic elements as well. Um, this is the visual scribe activity where we're talking about where a student has um, an iPad and he's just basically finger painting or finger drawing. Again. This is through explain everything as well. And see the black light of April of April Mother. And the black light is like it, it because April was very alone. So April was like sad because he was a a he's very dependent so so I'm going to cut him off there. The, the main point I wanted to put here was this is a student who doesn't always produce the most verbally, but he was able to actually capture the concepts of images and capture them better than anyone else has done. And they were very, you know, specific to themes that they were talking about. It was, it was interesting because he's capturing these really difficult thematic pieces that he's not able to then go back and explain with very much detail when he talks about um, Which is really helpful too, being that we have second language learners in our classrooms, and so you know they might be not only trying to figure out which words to use, but being able to just use visual, and they can explain both languages. Yeah. So then we made teacher uh, screencasts as well, and this is to give feedback and modeling for the actual preparations that the kids go into before. So this is a kid's annotated text, and then we would take that and annotate over it verbally, just talking about like what the good strategies are to prepare for that. 
And then these are some other examples of, um, these are book talks, which were Socratic book talks. But before the kids went to their book club, they made many presentations, posted them on Google Sites, and got discussion rolling before the kids actually went into the circle. So when they go into the circle, they've already got something to talk about. This is that idea of using the digital platform um, you know, before and after the event to capture more thinking. And then this is after the actual event. This was after uh, an interview, then the kids would create a slow motion um, Socratic discussion using post-its where everyone had to be completely silent for 15 minutes in class and using butcher paper they, they post their, their posts and, and then respond to each other. Then we, we took it digitally and then for two days they worked up their discussions and we came into all kinds of deep thinking from that. You know, this kid talking about what the roots of panic and human nature are. This is where it spins off to from there. So this, the idea of this is not just to use the event itself but have a a follow-up to it, where the you know what's going on in class can be further discussed later. And so, some of the models we look at are using Twitter boards and uh, back channeling during the discussion. But then, what to do with that afterwards? Correct. And I think that that also like since like we said, uh, there's so many parts to this: the preparation for the event, and then the circle itself happening, and then the kids participating, taking notes, and whatever. But then, what happens after? Because there is too much preparation that needs to be done and too much planning. But then, how do you actually assess these things? And like Lisa said, yeah, there, there will be students that actually use different strategies during the circle itself or during the preparation. But there is also taking into account like different learning styles and multiple intelligences. How do, how do you effectively assess this? Could I, could I answer the first part? Because well, I, I know I, that's the one thing I've always loved about working with Chris is that when we did, um, the prep that we did was, was good teaching in terms of looking at, when we did Alexander and the Terrible Horrible mm. the great did, and then we did the, the, um, the Socratic dialogue. And it was really exciting because both of us would be teaching to the book we were reading and I thought it was, we did some really good mini lessons based on character and character perspective and character motivation. And I thought that carries through, that helps the kids. And obviously you guys have done some really great job in terms of, um, put your finger on it, uh, setting text evidence and you've done some really excellent work in terms of characterization. I think um, leaving that assessment open across a series of points would be key to that, uh, the project stuff as well. It's like, well, we're looking at these thinking strategies, but the kid might present it in some of the pre-thinking, or he might present it in the discussion, or he might present it in some of the written work afterwards. Um, so looking across the spectrum of assignments, instead of just taking that one assignment, throwing it at the whole class and saying, this is how you're being assessed, now we've got multiple ways to capture that kind of thinking. And, but I really, and, and now how you do that too is like, I mean, I'm seeing this in the book clubs that we're doing and the discussions, and this is a much more in-depth way, and I can't wait to start doing this for the next book club round, mm -hmm. because um, it's more structured and more open at the same time, yeah. but the same checklists that I'm using for when I'm having the conversations with my kids, that whenever I see them doing that stuff, stuff on the checklist that relates to the standards, that relates to anything, I can go check it off, make comments, they're assessed, mm -hmm. and I have documentation for it. Yeah. I do check plus. Sometimes I have kids where I'm just like, well, that was such a great innovation or a great question. I stick a plus down there. So I know check I'm like... plus, stars, I have minuses, there you I go. write yeah. numbers on them, I write comments. Yeah, but there's your documentation. I totally yeah. agree. I yeah. think that's and all we need. In your running notes of the student. And I can, yeah, I can produce that for administrators or for parents or whoever, mm -hmm. any of the stakeholders who are... I mean, the, the important is that the skill is demonstrated somewhere. It doesn't have to be always be in the same way on the same assignment. Mm -hmm. And I think this kind oh, yeah, of activity absolutely. leaves that open for your introverts, extroverts, 
Um, that's something they talked about in some of the articles as well as um, planning your circles so that you have a nice balance. So you have extroverts and introverts in there so that you don't just have all the talkers in one. Well, and what we found with our Socratic circles, I remember specifically one of my students, she came so prepared to the circle, was so excited, and said nothing throughout the entire conversation. Absolutely nothing. And we, everyone was like, what happened? Why didn't you say anything? And she, she just had stage fright. She was afraid to say anything. She knew she was being recorded. She knew the rest of the class was paying attention. And so what was nice is that the second round we did it with the same group of kids. She had um, come prepared. We had some conversation. Um, they had to practice a little bit of a dialogue prior to the actual circle and was much more comfortable with having a conversation with everybody. And so that was something that you know, is beneficial is to be able to do it not just once and be like, okay, it's done, we've done the Socratic circle, but to continue to have that throughout the classroom and throughout different areas of the curriculum. I totally agree. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the teacher had the ability to grab those annotated notes and think that's your, your assessment. You clearly did the reading, you clearly did the work, and, you, and you're showing it here. Mm-hmm. So this is a, a, a rare example here um, that I found where they're using Socratic um, methods with math. And to actually go into like what's real and talking about geometric concepts. It's really exciting. You know, I, I told you, I so I, I thought that was a, a pretty fun way to approach it, to bring math into kind of the real world too. You can see this is probably more like middle school, high school, but they're looking at a definition of a line segment where they find the physical model um, and then what it, what it looks like. And so um, these would be sort of other ways to pull this kind of thinking in. No, um, this is precisely what happens, you see. If the kid is capable of articulating what something is and give a definition, he or she understood it, you see. And, yeah, and it only happens if you're able to talk and talk and talk all the time until you refine your thinking. Yeah, is the square wrong? Is a, is a square also a rectangle? Is a square also a polygon? And I had kids debating that. It was so much fun. Yeah. And then they, they realized we all came to consensus. So speaking both to, to the... A child who had an affective filter because mm-hmm. she was shy and speaking in front of a group, as well as being able to articulate mm-hmm. knowledge that they do have, the ability to practice many times with the pairs and their partners mm-hmm. really is going to lower that affective filter. I'll ask Stephen Krashen. Absolutely. I'll ask Stephen Krashen like that. So this particular article had a great checklist, this is from the Circle of Knowledge, and these are sort of just techniques to get people talking, and this is probably very natural for experienced teachers, but you know, volunteering, just anyone can talk, and random calling kids, um, I don't know why I put student calling here, but it must have been a mistake, round robin, just you know, go, having a go around, surveying, trying like the A-B strategy of pitting kids against each other so they can then argue about it, and then redirection, I guess, is more like plussing, like someone says something, transferring that conversation to the next student, do they agree with it or disagree with it, and then a kind of checklist of going into the circle, defining your purpose, and having your focus questions, which would be your, your primary kind of essential questions that you want addressed. And the sparking questions are what you would ask just to get things rolling. Um, choosing your content and picking it, and the content, varied content, not just text content, but video content and uh, artistic content, any, anything you can pull in. Kindling activities to get it going, you know, in discussions we've used, uh, using a piece of text and then just like reading that dramatically and then going into the analysis. And then something at the end to bring it all back together, checking in with each other in the case of the Socratic circles. I'm going to quickly um, flip through because I see our time is going through. This is more of a um, warming us up for interviews we're doing next week. These are two guys who wrote an article for Utopia where they used digital platforms back in 2011 with their Socratic circles. 
And so we'll, and with their discussion, we'll probably continue that theme more. And then these are feedback forms from a librarian who used uh, Twitter boards during their Socratic uh, to capture all the thought in the room. They used Twitter boards to capture the thoughts and the questions of the outside circle, and then they would revisit those when they came to rehash with their with the people on the inside circle. That's called the Unquiet Library, and she has her own, own blog as well. <laughs> and then this guy, James Allen Sturtevant, I believe I pronounced his name. We're going to be interviewing him next week as well. And he wrote a book about Socratic circles, and he's got some great sort of strategies and, and checklists with that as well. His students are going to interact with our students. So in the second half, we'll go into that. Yeah, well, we need to get his name right then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How would you say Sturtevant? <laughs> um, I like the blue screen behind you. Is that so you can have like graphics of floating? <laughs> That's a chroma. We're going to be here in a couple minutes. And so we really come to you kind of seeking from your experience with the um, disruptive dialogue project um, and kind of your perspective from upper level academia and theoretically like what sort of input you can give us working with elementary school kids and some of the same things. So I guess I'll just start, you know, if you could sort of explain um, how does critical inquiry relate to your disruptive dialogue project? Maybe just kind of talk about what that project is or was. Um. Yeah, sure. So that started when we were in grad school and basically we all showed up at the same uh, conference sessions uh, and we just saw each other there repeatedly, and the conference sessions happened to be more critically focused, meaning they were um, trying to think through education in ways that we have we don't traditionally think through it. So we kind of started seeing each other, and um, we just kind of struck up friendships. And we felt like we were all at our individual institutions, and we didn't really um, have a means for connecting this critical component um, you know, with our colleagues there for whatever reason, we kind of felt like outsiders. So um, we understood sort of collectively this notion of what it means to be critical basically means to intervene in something. And um, that component was really important to us um, because uh, uh, I think simplistically the notion of critique can be just to sort of like distance yourself from whatever problem you're engaging with and just sort of offer an analysis. Right? So we wanted to understand critique in a more sort of productive way um, and understand it as this sort of intervening in something which then would change it. So hence the name disruption, right? This disruptive dialogue project. We try to take really seriously this idea that dialogue with one another can sort of disrupt your thought process, kind of. Um, so that began in grad school and started, we would do common readings together and then um, have like uh, uh, conference calls and talk about readings and then we started trying to write together um, because there is something about really trying to put together a plot with another person that I think is really productive. Um, so uh, out of that, we ended up sort of going on and getting jobs at different institutions and stuff. And we, but we were dedicated to this project, which meant that we were always going to have a home conference where we once a year sort of came together in person, and we were going to have these online conversations throughout. And then the other thing that was, you know, because we we're coming faculty, we wanted to publish this stuff, but we didn't want to get into the first author, second author, third author thing. So we decided it's going to rotate. Like, okay, my friend Ryan, it's your turn, you'll be first author, and you know, Aaron will be second, or whatever. 
So that was a way for us to sort of like flatten the sort of institutional hierarchy that's sort of set upon faculty members, which is prioritizing first authorship, then second authorship, and that type of thing. Um, so where critical inquiry works uh, that is we are all, I think, dedicated towards using education for some element of social change. And um, at that, well, for the most part, our focus has been on higher education or tertiary education, you know, universities and colleges. Um, and try to think through how can we um, enable ourselves and our students to basically think differently than we have in the past, which is, you know, there's that saying, um, to make strange the familiar. Because if you only, if you understand something in familiar ways over and over and over again, all you do is repeat it, right? Um, so we wanted to try and figure out a way to make, make that not happen. Someone once talked about it as making plot stutter, right? Like, so you can't quite get to the next whatever it is. And in that moment, there's like a productive space that um, can be very useful. And for us, that's, that, that's, just, that's like a productive disruption. So we called it the Disruptive Dialogue Project. Specifically, we want to call it um, a dialogue because a dialogue for us is this idea that um, if two people are in a dialogue, both people are being changed by that dialogue. So if I'm speaking with you, I have to come in with the expectation that I'm not just asserting a, a position, that I'm going to be changed by my interactions with you. Um, and I think for all too far too often in education, you have that sort of linear progressive movement of information where either I give it to you and you take it and sort of move on with it and it doesn't come back, you know, there's not a, a dynamism there um, within it. So for us that sort of dialogue is a really important component uh, of education and is the space for critical inquiry. That's where, um, you know, through dialogue, through um, uh, engaging with another, um, change can happen. And then um, Lastly, I'll just say before I you know, take a breath, that um, part of this comes from the idea that um, knowledge uh, is never fully formed. So if it's never fully formed, then it's always evolving and changing. So this links to what you were saying earlier, Chris, about this notion of Barry's idea of um, problem-based knowing, right, versus banking concepts of education. A banking concept of education, knowledge becomes a commodity that you can like put in people, that you can like give to somebody else. But if we understand knowledge is never fully formed, then it can never be um, like this external thing that we grant other people. It's always a relation. So we try to really think think through that and take that to heart and understand. Okay, if knowledge is always in pro process, if knowledge happens potentially between you and me in the interaction, the relation of teachers and students and students and students and the like, how would that shift how we would do inquiry? How would that shift how we would look into experience, look into you know, um, uh, student experience or faculty experience, look into how we come to know, and that type of thing. So those are sort of the basic premises that began the Disruptive Dialogue Project. Cool. And yeah. Yeah, I want to jump questions because you mentioned a couple of things that I think would be helpful to us in our own kind of uh, structural design as well. 
One was the, um, I'm looking for my question, but I'll just try to restate out of memory. You talked about um, the digital spaces. Yeah. And yeah. like, since you're all at different universities, how important was it to have this asynchronous kind of sharing time via Twitter or Facebook or whatever platforms you're using um, in creating these, you know, <laughs> the stutter or the, the revisit or the, the process of the, of the knowledge? Yeah, it was, it's really important. So what I like about like, like you pointing out the asynchronous nature of it is it gets away from that um, linear progressive notion of knowledge that we can fall into, right? That, so what it allows us to do is go back and revisit previous conversations or previous interactions mm. um, and not be sort of swept up in the momentum of time, mm. right? So if you imagine like the ease with which maybe in a classroom um, a, you know, a, cl a school day uh, typically will divide time into, you know, spots of classes, right, which we need to have. So first period, second period, third period. Well, that can lend itself to thinking, well, in second period, I need to start here and end here, right? And that's the sort of linear progression. I'm going to move, they're going to come in not knowing something, and by the end, they'll know this, right? And I think that that is uh, important in some ways, but I think it's also dangerous in other ways because it, it doesn't allow us to sort of revisit ideas in productive ways. So what the technology has allowed us to do is we would do things like tape a conference call and then produce a transcript and then write a piece in relation that's like talking to the transcript kind of. So you have you know, where we once were, talk to where we are now, and then revisiting it. Actually, my friend Ryan and I um, used, I think it was a series of email and like Twitter interactions, and we tried to produce a document, I don't know if it works, we tried to produce a document that you can sort of read down, like you normally would, read down the page, and also read across, so that you have ideas talking to each other. Um, because I think that, is it's much more of a, um, like, philosophically, it lines with, like, Foucault and Deleuze, these sort of post-structural theorists, and they, they use the metaphor of the rhizome, right? So a rhizome is like a, um, uh, like a potato or a, a ginger root. If you've ever seen ginger root um, at the store or something, it doesn't have a center, right? It kind of just goes out. Or the, the example they always use here... <laughs> Um, uh, in the, well, especially in the Northeast, is crabgrass, right? Like, everyone's trying to get crabgrass off their lawn, and they're so, they're like destroying the environment so they can get rid of crabgrass. The way crabgrass works is it'll like, there'll be a constellation of it here, and then shoot off over here, and there'll be another constellation, and shoot off, and there'll be another constellation. Huh. So that's the metaphor. So we tried to sort of create that. So instead of having a metaphor of like, you know, like I can refer to, you know, a linear progression here to here, you have the metaphor of what we ended up terming kind of like constellations of knowledge. We have a little constellation here that shoots off to a little constellation here that shoots off over here. So technology, I think asynchronous technologies afford that because you can go back and revisit these little constellations and come up with new relationships among them that otherwise you wouldn't have found. Mm -hmm. Um, but the trick is you have to sort of, this is that uh, making strange the familiar, get yourself out of the mindset where you're like, well, you know, a month ago when we had that conversation, I was in a different place and I'm so much more advanced now, right? Or like, 
if I'm an eighth grader, I'm so much smarter than I was in fourth grade, so of course what I said or wrote doesn't, isn't useful. Or, you know, if we bring it to us teachers, you know, I'm not, I, I can't possibly converse with my pre-tenure self um, because I'm so much smarter than I am now, right? Um, so it, you have to get yourself out of that way of thinking and, and think uh, in different relations that right now, in this moment, I'm relating with you and I'm relating with these uh, with um, thoughts and minds. I was working earlier on a book chapter that I've been working for a year. So all of that stuff is like interacting right now. And so I think these asynchronous technologies allow you um, to not rely on the momentum of time, you know, the sort of tick-tock of time as it continues on. Mm. No, that's, I mean, that aligns really well with some of the stuff that we're, I don't want to say we do across the board, but we play around with this idea of like having these kind of uh, interactions and then going and transcribing the actual text of it. And then from the text, yes. create these like, you know, uh, kind of mind mapping conversations that go off in slow motion from there as well. That's cool. And you can link it to like, you know, Prairie's Pedagogy of the Press. You can take the transcript and literally put it in conversation with, you know, sections of that text or with sections of Chomsky's work, mm. that type of thing. Well, I wanted to know a little bit about like, um, our school is a, um, a SAC school, so we are very tied to Common Core and standardized testing. Um, and I was fascinated by, um, I mean, I read an article of yours and I was like totally taken aback. Like that was, um, it was really, really good uh, to see that there's some people out there who are really pushing it. But I wanted to know what possibilities have you experienced or witnessed where we can reconcile what you are proposing with what we have to do and we have no way of getting out of. Yeah. yeah <laughs> no, no, go ahead. There was a question on my mind as well. Is, yeah. it, is it sometimes our curriculum is prescribed? I mean, the yeah. Common Core can be interpreted pretty openly, yeah. but when you teach, for example, ties on a class, on a grade level of five other teachers, so a lot of times the pressure is to create these assessments and and you create the assessments and then you start creating the activities to go to the assessments so it gets it gets kind of you know depending on what kind of teacher you are I can get the pressure to all create work that's going to produce something to evaluate in this format can be yeah. overwhelming sometimes you know my idea like like a, a creative assignment is one in which you leave it so open that the students can actually a appropriate the assignment and do something new with it but we often are getting you know 25 kids producing the exact same product, that kind of idea. Yeah, I mean, this, this is a challenge. <laughs> so this points to, I think in that piece that you all maybe sort of glanced over, we talked about spaces like interstices, mm -hmm. right? So if you follow that type of thinking that I was talking about for, earlier about dialogue and interaction, and, and knowledge is never being fully formed, it, um, uh, institutional um, uh, legislation, for lack of a better term, will always fall short. It can never cover every activity. It can never fully account for every daily practice. It always drops off um, because we're always shifting and changing. So as a result, what um, I've tried to think through with others is to find where are the spaces, where are the gaps where everything is not covered. And I'll give you an example because it can get um, tough because I know, I know, you know, working with teachers around here, they're like, you know, I, I would love to have the time to do this, but, you know, we don't have it. So I worked with some teachers in Tuscaloosa, and um, when I was talking to them, one of the things that I've that I found or that I saw, which was really troubling, was 
They were most creative in isolation, which meant they felt like they had to shut the doors to their rooms in order to be creative because they were worried that someone was going to do a walkthrough or someone was going to say, you know, where's your lesson plan for doing this creative activity? <laughs> right? That's very true. And so that comes problematic because we know that uh, you know creativity happens best in collaboration, right? In interactions. So my my work with these teachers was they basically got them together. I said, look, you're all doing creative stuff, but you're doing it in your individual classes, so you have no idea what you're doing. The only thing, the only communicative capacity you have is based on these standards. So everything that your your conversation, which is no longer dialogue, right? Your conversation has become standardized. Because you're talking about standards, you're talking about testing, you're talking about all this. So what do we have to do to try and get a creative capacity within your conversations? And where are the gaps? So I, um, it, admittedly, it takes sort of pressure on administrators, I think, and administrators to sort of step up creatively. And we basically talked the um, principal into hiring subs for professional development for these teachers. And she said, what's the professional development? And I said, building creative capacity. And she said, um, well, what, what's the end? Like, what's the product? And I was like, here's the fabulous thing. We don't know. We don't have a clue. And, it might have and to her credit, she, let, she did it. So it was important to me that um, it happened, these meetings happened during school because, you know, teachers have lives too and they're, you know, running from, you know, coaching, you all know, all the hundred different things that teachers do after school. So I wanted, I said, you know, let's hire teachers, I mean, let's hire subs to come in and let's get these groups together so they can just start talking about the creative work they're doing in their classrooms. And my, my guess is, once the conversation gets going, they're going to be able to point to how it impacts this, the very standards that you want to prescribe, right? So it's kind of breaking this, the, the prescribed standards from, a lot, from creating pre prescribed practices. Hmm. And so we thought, in that, there's a space there that we need to start inhabiting. Otherwise, you know, I think this is why teachers burn out in three to five years, right? Because they're, you, know, you get tired of doing the same thing over and over again. And then a new administration comes in and you do the same thing over and over again, but with different practices, right? So, if, you know, for some, I think you have to find gaps that you can sort of sit down and work within. And for us, you know, it, it really took an administrator who was going to step up and say, okay. And I came from the university and I said, you know, I work at a public university, so my resources are public resources. So, um, use me. <laughs> and so I went in and I said, I don't know, you all are the experts on teaching, but I'm pretty good to get close together and great conversation. So, from there, we develop what we term um, living documents, which sounds a little bit like you're doing here for the podcasts a little bit. And again, this living document idea is that um, they're not, it's like knowledge, right? They're never fully complete. So it's like creating a living portfolio. So students, I mean, the teachers would create portfolios of what they were doing in the classroom and then um, share them with another and pass these documents around. And it wasn't their official lesson or anything like that. Um, so that's I mean, very long period to try to find spaces and persistence gaps where you can't recover. Uh,
No, very cool. That's like, Thank you. That's what we wanted to hear. <laughs> well, no, and it, yeah. it does address sort of like one of the objectives of what we're trying to do here is to open this idea of these kinds of dialogues where teachers come in with a project and, and share it out, but in a, you know not in our typical teacher collaboration time, which aren't usually aren't, aren't, aren't too populations. If it's getting loud from our end, it, it's pelting rain over here, so. Um, yeah, I can hear it. I think it, you, you covered a, most of my questions in your, in your first two, but there, there is one that I, I kind of wanted to cover, and that is like, when you're working not just with teachers, but with students, the importance of leaving these, um, these stutter spaces and these spaces to revisit and why that's so, like, why why would you theoretically or just practically say that's so important in child development for them to, like, feel the power of their own thoughts and then mix them with others and then, you know, come back and they do that? Well, I mean, this gets back to this whole notion of being critical, right? We want um, students, or my perspective is, we want students to be able to, yeah, we want them to be able to get jobs, we want them to do all these different things, but we want them to have a reflective capacity on their life. And I think far too often we teach students in a way that they don't have a reflective capacity in their life. We teach them to be doers, right? Like, fill this out, fill this out, do this, do this, and they're really unfortunate, they're really skilled students. You know, when I meet with my grad students, I say, here's what we really know about you coming in. One, you test well, because you wouldn't be here unless you tested well, right? We have the GRE, we have all these different things. Two is, you're really good at figuring out what it means to be a good student, and then reproducing it. We don't yet know if you're a reflective student, or a reflective pra um, a practitioner, because thank God we can't test for that, right? So that, let's get into that work. So I think it's essential that we build in, in the students and we build into our engagements with students a place for them to speak back. And the way that they can speak back is from their experience, which I think is really important. You have a story to tell. But it's also um, from their engagement with things like text. So I think we need to sort of challenge students to read text and kind of, I mean, kind of call BS on some of the writers and say like, here's how, here's what I think, you know, this person is saying, I have no idea what it is, it doesn't speak to me in any way. And instead of that being an end point, that's an opening point. Saying, okay, well where's the friction in the reading, right? Where, where is this author missing whatever it is that you can bring to the table and that type of thing. And then the other thing is to give students an element of productive agency within the classroom. Right? I mean, we, um, far too often the definition of a good student is someone who can sit quietly, right, and just sort of be there. Um, now, students still need to, there's always going to be a, a power relation that can be very helpful with teachers and the like, but we've got to get students able to take, a, take some ownership of the very rooms that they inhabit as students. And whether that is, you know, when I was a kid growing up, I was in this very strange um, educational environment where it was like project-based learning and multi-age, and we ran the classroom on Robert Tools of Order. So students were engaged in like, you know, trying to produce change in their in the actual classroom. Um, and I'm, I'm a proponent of that. And the other thing is, and I think um, that it sounds like you're starting to do this, is to get students thinking and working beyond the classroom. So that's for here in my work, that's engaging students in local communities. 
you know, um, trying to get them to, to understand. So you, if, you have, if you're ever reading that's engaging up here with some sort of at the discursive level around issues of social justice, say, you're reading query or, you know, you're implementing that in, in your engagement with students. Then you talk to them about daily community practices that get at some of those same issues of justice and fairness and what it means to be a good citizen, right? Um, and that's, if, they can, if you can start getting students to make that connection, I think that's really important. Because otherwise what we produce in education, and we're really good at producing this in, in the United States, are docile citizens, right? Citizens who are like trained to be quiet. Um, and that's a grave misjustice for education. So we need to talk, I think, more specifically to students about what does it mean to be an active citizen? What does it mean to be a critical citizen? You know, to be a critical citizen is not to sit back and sort of critique everything around you. It's to critique sort of the, the, the injustices while you're engaging with the injustices. And so, um, you know, if you can start to get students involved in that critical, in those critical engagements, then I think that's a really important act um, that's kind of missing in education in the world. That's great that you mentioned um, project-based learning, because that's a, a lot of what we've been taking, like, examples from kind of where we want to go with our own projects by year. Um, and I'm glad that you mentioned, too, there is this idea behind everything you've said so far of, you know, like empowering students and making them creators of their own thing rather than just repeating whatever we give them. Uh, that being said, what do you think is, or should be, or from your experience, what do you think is the right balance between, you know, like teacher-guided research or whatever and student-guided inquiry or research? Yeah. Well, I, it's an, that's an ongoing balance, because here's the thing, you all are teachers for a reason, right? So you have a knowledge, you have the capacity and the training um, that can't be ignored in the classroom, right? So it's not like, we'll throw it all over the students and see what happens, right? It's because you have something to offer in terms of professionalism. But I do think getting students to engage, like you mentioned, in project-based learning is really important. Because it allows them to define the end, right? So maybe you set up like a very loose structure and say, you know, you're going to have a, I don't know, some sort of engaged, I don't like presentations, I'd rather they do things like facilitate a conversation. Because a presentation is sort of like, you know, here's what I, here's what I did and here's the outcome or whatever. So when I work with students or I work with teachers who are then going to be working with students, I say, how can you get students to, instead of presenting information, facilitate discussion on information? So <laughs> that means that they have to really think through, okay, what, do I have, what information do I have to get out there first, and what questions can I ask to facilitate discussion? That, I think the questions are more important than their findings, right? Um, at least for developing these types of critical elements. The other thing is, and this is where my cynicism comes in, <laughs> I start to think, whatever I do in my classroom, or whenever I work with teachers and talk to them that they do in their classroom, I don't have to worry, or we don't have to worry about reinscribing the norm. They're gonna get the norm, again, at some point. They're gonna keep getting banking, you know, banking styles of education. They're gonna keep getting, like, here's teach to the test and stuff. So I don't have to worry about that. In some ways, it's freeing. I can say, like, oh, yeah, down the road, you're going to keep getting this sort of, like, typical schooling. 
So at least within my class, or at least within this interaction, we can forget about it and do something differently right now. Um, so I think part of it is, you know, just to get back to the question about the, um, about the balance, is you begin with an expectation of accountability, and then you work through um, to say, what, what are the means to be able to hold you accountable? So if the key expectation is facilitation, is accountability, then that means that the, the peers in the group are accountable to one another as well. So if you are, um, wow, it really sounds like you're getting... <laughs> Nice to meet you. Hi. Again, I'm Nicholas. Go ahead. And so we basically, um, we were in the spotlight, which is like a thing where we kind of introduce our learnings. And so in the, we did a lot of Socratic circles, like... First just introduce uh, yourself, and then we'll go into the questions. So who are you? Okay, once again, I'm Annie. Okay, so these guys are fourth graders, uh, and now that we're recording, we're just going to do introductions again, so if you guys wouldn't mind just kind of saying who you are, where, where you are, what you're doing there. Okay, um, my name is William Smith. Um, I'm a senior at Big Moment High School. And um, I'm here to talk about Socratic circles. My name is Michaela Young. I am also a senior at Big Mona High School. And I'm also here to talk about Socratic circles. My name is Jim Sturdivant. I am a teacher at Big Mona High School. And if you guys are wondering where that is, you've heard of the Great Lakes, just about 100 miles south of Lake Erie. So we live in the state of Ohio, which is in the eastern half of the United States, in the northern eastern half. In Ohio? You got it. I'm going there for Christmas. It's <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Maybe we'll see you. Maybe we'll get some snow for you. Okay, that's us. So um, I'm going to start off just with kind of asking them to do a quick go-around. And the go-around will just be sort of... Um, what were their impressions of being in a Socratic circle? So I'm just going to ask you guys to kind of start it off. Like, what was the coolest thing about being in a Socratic circle? And then what was the most difficult thing about being in a Socratic circle? So, Nico, you want to start us off? Well, um, in a Socratic circle, my, the best thing I did was basically... Um, I, I liked a lot to have a conversation of one topic only but on different topics at the same time that it got into the main topic. And the thing that I, I, I think it was not so easy was that, that you, you, you needed to study the topic before talking about the topic, the topic. And that it was just a big conversation, so you didn't quite know when to start or when to finish. Yes, so what was pretty um, for me is that like I like to participate in, in like with other students to 
um, talk about any topic and we really get to have a big conversation about it in the Socratic Circle. And um, what was kind of more hard for me was that like trying to keep it going on because like you know you know like what you have studied and researched, but then like once you've already said everything that you know, it's kind of like how do I keep this going? Um, and so what I really liked about Socratic Circles is we sometimes we spend a long time on one subject and then we'd switch and then it would be a short time. But I, um, it helped me understand the subject more and it helped me learn. And the thing that was harder for me was sort of preparing um, for the Socratic Circles. So if you guys wouldn't mind just kind of continuing digitally the circle around, uh, just sort of what, what are the difficulties, what, what, what's, what makes it easier? Okay, so um, for me, uh, for my first Socratic Circle, I really had um, some issues with the preparation aspect of it. I I uh, read the material, but I wasn't sure how to apply it and how to like bring it in in a way that made sense to me and made sense to everyone else. But I really, um, after doing them more and more times, I got the hang of it. I really enjoyed um, talking about what I learned about bringing that full circle and um, getting a different point of view on it from other people as well. Oh. My experience with Socratic Circles uh, led me to really appreciate the amount of uh, views you get, different viewpoints. Um, I think it's so important to discuss the topics we talk about in class like, as a group, because it just gives you a bunch of different angles from which to form your opinion. Uh, normally, when a teacher teaches, you just hear what that teacher thinks about a subject. And so, like, it's a lot healthier to like be able to uh, think about a topic in multiple ways and I feel like it's really helped me in that respect. And then uh, what's hard about it is um, what you guys mentioned about uh, being prepared and making sure you understand all the main points. Cool. Well, if you guys don't mind, I'm going to keep asking questions uh, and, then, and then you guys can open up to whatever else, but the, the other thing I wanted to know, especially from your side over there, is um, what did you guys do before you actually go into the circle? Like, what, what does a common preparation look like before the circle? What happens in the circle, and then what happens after the circle? So we kind of get that before, during, and after feel of the experience. Do you guys want to start? Well, with, oh, sure. sorry. No, go ahead. Well, at the beginning of the year, we started off talking about Cornell notes and um, about we learned about how repetition of a topic is the way that you are able to test well on it by learning more about it and by um, repeating what you already learned. And um, I think that's the best part of the surprise was that you keep repeating the information that you already know and you get more viewpoints on it. So beforehand, what you do is we're given. Um, we're given research and we're given um, articles or various primary sources or even videos to watch. And um, 
as we go through them, we learn more about the topic and then we're, we discuss what was in them during the actual circle. But for me, I like to do a little bit of outside research as well. I like to go to other sources and to kind of get an overall viewpoint of the topic, not just the aspect that we're discussing. And then um, during the circle itself um, is all about bringing what you've learned and the research that you've done and the points that you've um, that you've acquired and from the reading and bringing that into um, the circle and articulating that in a way that um, shows your point of view as well as the points of views of the authors and um, accepting the points of views of the other people in the room. Alright, um, so for uh, Socratic circles, uh, what I like to do is um, Mr. Student normally gives us a reading and like um, a little variety, so it could be like a video or a podcast or just something that's um, a little bit different, something usually involving technology. And so what I do with that is um, I get out a piece of paper and like I take notes on it. And um, it's kind of tedious sometimes, but I think it's really necessary in a conversation like this that you have like all your ducks in a row and just know what you're going to say. And then uh, during, I think I heard a couple of you mention like, how do you start, how do you stop, like how do you keep it going? And um, I think the most important part uh, of that is making sure that you have a bunch of open-ended questions. Uh, I feel like Socratic circles are best when they're centered around um, like questions that uh, can be interpreted in multiple ways. Because um, just the nature of Socratic circles, like you get everyone's viewpoints. So if you can interpret the question in multiple ways, you'll um, kind of just build around those uh, topics and around that question. Chris, you can see why I brought these guys. Yeah. And one thing I want to add to that. Uh, okay. They're, okay. They're, they're right on, but what they're what they're talking about, these guys have. Have practice. Can you guys tell them some of the things you did before the circle or, or during the circle? Talk about your annotated notes that you took and, and some of the questions that you wrote before. So first we read an, an article, a book, or something, and then while we're reading the notes, well, while we're reading, we take notes and we highlight it and we and we took. <laughs> I think we lost it. You guys still there? Yeah. We're back. You're still there? Yeah. Yeah. We don't. We don't have video on you, but we we can hear you. Okay. You're not seeing us, are you? No, not yet. All right. Let's see if I. I'll get us. There okay. We we're back there, on. There. Yeah. So we highlighted and we took notes of the book. And through the notes, we were thinking of how, 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 how this information that, that I am taking can go on an open-ended question to continue the conversation. Yeah, so I like took notes and all that. 
and we, we just, with all of the things, like, we, we just, like, read the chapters, and we tried to, like, get all the details to become, like, open-ended questions, and, like, pay attention to what's happening so that we can get what's going on to, like, talk about more and give more opinions in the Socratic circle, which was what we did when we were making open-ended questions. And then once we had all our stuff, we had, we normally, we were in groups, and so, like, we'd have, like, one day to get our things, and then the next day we'd have our Socratic circle. <laughs> and so, one thing I want to add is, there's a couple of things these guys said that are really important to emphasize. Kayla said that she went out and did research on her own. Now, you know you you created a really good prompt, a really good resource when you have students saying, I was interested in this, so I went and did some additional research on my own. That's where you really know you're starting to strike gold. Now the other thing that Will brought up was a variety of different sources. Uh, recently we did a podcast class, and it was on the fall of Tenochtitlan in Mexico. And I would say 70% of the class really liked that format, 30% didn't. You have to keep trying different stuff. Yeah, one thing I, I saw in your article, um, I read he wrote a book about um, amazing. So one thing I saw in his article was this using different formats. And so one thing we tried to play with a little bit, but I think we could go even further, is using photographs, imagery to get the kids thinking about the topic, um, having the actual text in there. We would use Nearpod to curate all of these things. And then um, have some video segments. Some of the teacher reading the text, and then some of the teacher... Um, like giving them feedback on the last circle of annotations, you know, how they annotated their text. These guys are just starting to practice like really annotating text and really creating those probing questions. So we would have sessions the day before with the group going into the circle just to have a quick discussion about what they need to prepare more of. Do they need more questions? Do they need more um, strong statements when they, when they go into the circle? Um, and then the circle itself, and it was hit or miss. Sometimes the kids went in super prepared, but the discussion didn't flower that much. Um, and then sometimes, especially these three kids, that's why we chose them, they did such a good job of managing the discussion, of jumping in. You know, Annie, you would go into character descriptions and really get in um, to the actual discussion part. And that was the fun part. You know, Kayla said not knowing where to stop and not knowing where to start. But once they got going and actually started questioning each other, it brought them a lot deeper into their thinking. Very, very cool stuff. And there's one more thing I want to add on, on Will's point. You talked about the open-ended question. Your kids talked about open-ended questions. Another way to take that a step further is give them a dilemma question. Oh. A dilemma yeah. question causes them to propose a solution, think about a position, uh, think about various positions. Dilemma questions are great to try to foster that. So I, I want to ask the kids a question. Anybody can answer that on either side. When when you do find that disagreeable viewpoint, how is that challenging for you? I mean, you, you, you both said on that end and over here, I think they mentioned it too, that it's really interesting finding these different viewpoints. And that creates that position that you have to kind of argue against or, or you know, argue off of. Um, did you ever find that it was really difficult when you go into the circle that people's viewpoints were really difficult to deal with. And how did you deal with that? Yes, we had an experience um, in our last Socratic school, actually. We had a um, very strong differing of points on the Aztecs, and 
on human sacrifice. And I think that um, Bill said this earlier today, that the, the main thing to remember is that this is a discussion and not a debate. And so you were mentioning earlier that these students kind of um, took on the role of a manager. And I think that that's a really key role for someone in a Socratic circle. And I think that that's how most Socratic circles end up panning out. If there's one person or even two people who end up becoming like a manager and take on the role of teacher and make sure that the discussion keeps going and says, okay guys, we've already discussed that. Why don't we move on to another topic in the same area that's not as um, testy and not as a uh, debatable topic. You guys wanna, did you ever come across viewpoints, Melanie, April, that were difficult to deal with or? Oh yeah, and sometimes when we are on the Socratic circle, we're talking of two persons, basically. And both persons were uh, much different and sometimes one person thought that this person was one thing because of the other person was another thing and it, it was quite a mess mm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, when, when it was someone was like talking about one thing and the other one was talking about the other thing and another thing is that sometimes the the areas on the topic sometimes quite moved really fast like they just did two minutes of one area and then moved to another one so he's, he's talking about this, this was a question of mine too is about the moderation of you know how the discussion goes when i've done discussions before as a teacher when i'm in the circle i feel like i, I can really guide the students and keep them on one topic um, did you guys ever find that's a problem over there that people sort of don't go as deep as they should in the topic and they kind of jump around to different topics the discussion doesn't really go anywhere it just kind of bounces around how do you uh, control that how, what do you do with that first um, I believe that uh, the important thing is that is involved and uh, the best way to do that I guess is questions and then um, making sure the topic is interesting um, if you have an interesting topic, I mean, it's just human nature, people are more likely to respond to it. And so if that means like maybe jumping over things that uh, people don't really want to talk about, I think that's fine as long as you're still getting a good discussion about what people do find interesting and what they um, do want to talk about. Hmm. So it's, I'm, I'm gathering um, just from glancing at, at your teacher's literature and what you guys are saying now, when you guys go into a circle, there's a specific objective to the circle. Is that more, more or less correct? Like you're, you're talking about the Aztecs and human sacrifice, or, because um, what we were playing around with over here, I think was much more open, like they could talk about any theme in the story they wanted, but we tended around four to five different themes they bounced back and forth from. But maybe what we should try is kind of needling in and actually Pick, having the students pick those themes and then have the talk be on, on that theme. Chris, each, uh, each circle, each part of the circle has an essential question. And that's, and that's what guides them. Now they bounce around some, but they need to address this essential question. Or sometimes there's two options. Yes. Yeah. Definitely. 
Um, I've done a little bit of background research on uh, some Socratic Circle-like methods that have been effective. Like Sarah Tontillo, she's the author of the Literacy Cookbook, and um, she puts a lot of emphasis on um, having essential questions because that way you get to focus on what you want while still keeping a broader like topic, but narrowing down instead of just saying, okay, we're talking about the Aztecs, narrowing it down to, okay, we're going to talk about human sacrifice in this circle and the Spanish influence in this circle. And then that way you get you get to hit all the main points that you want to hit in order to make sure that the information is all covered. But along with that, you get to um, bring in the interesting viewpoints of the people of people who um, have done their research and who want to participate in the circle and who get to talk about what they want to talk about. Because if it's not a topic that they're not interested in, the circle is going to go nowhere. And you're going to be sitting there, and it's going to be silent and awkward, and it's not going to serve its purpose. And it's been my experience with Socratic circles. We've all of the Socratic circles I've done have had the essential questions, and I've never really witnessed a lull in conversation that lasted more than about thirty seconds. And I think that that's an important thing to talk about because if you don't have something that's um, interesting, it's just human nature to not want to talk about it. No, it gives us a lot, a lot to think about because you know we always try to kind of include that element of, of choice and student-guided direction. But I think we're also talking about kind of two, um, a little bit different topics. In, in literature, I, I think there's some things that would just naturally be more left open. Whereas if you're talking social studies, you've got themes, you've got content that you really want to meet out. Like what are the moral issues around those things? So um, it gives us sort of a, an idea of the spectrum of strategies we could go into. I think with uh, I think with literature, the, the key thing to do is to make it relevant to their lives. How does this apply to my existence? And that, that's where I think you can really get kids to start talking about similar things. But I'm just speculating here. I'm getting into social studies. Okay. But you're going to get that discrepancy no matter what like field you're going to do. Because if you do a Socratic circle with an art class versus a social studies class, versus a math class, there's always going to be a difference of how it's structured and set up. And I think that finding the happy medium is a key thing, that's going to be, it's going to be difficult, but it's going to end up being the best way. Uh, one, one thing I want to add to what these guys are saying in terms of uh, making your Socratic circles better, is I hold them accountable to demonstrate to me the thing And that is the whole end that is them showing me that they did high level fighting the margins or whatever, showing me that they had to answer some prompts to deal with whatever sorts I have. And they lose points if they can't demonstrate that. And I think that that really helps your circle too because my students seem to be very prepared. When I bring people in from the outside, they're like, they, they know this material. I think that's another key point, is bringing in the people from the outside. I feel like that holds students more accountable, because it's not just if you don't prepare and you don't answer any questions and you don't talk, you're not just embarrassing yourself in front of your classmates, you're embarrassing yourself in front of a prominent community member, someone who actually means something to the real world. Hey Will, tell them what you have to be careful about. 
Um, you have to be careful about um, what we already mentioned it before, but just about debating, especially when you have an outside visitor. Um, it's it's really uh, crazy. You have to like be very. Um, uh, Mr. Stewart has to make better careful. choices. <laughs> you have to be very, very careful as to who you invite into your Socratic circle. Um, you want someone who um, has passion about what you will be talking about, but you don't want someone so regimented in their viewpoint that it's hard for them to remain open to everyone's uh, ideas. And so um, just be careful of that when you have a visitor. But I do believe it is good to have a visitor because um, just getting out of your comfort zone is a huge like part of a Socratic circle. And I feel like when it's someone new, someone who you haven't interacted with before, you're more willing to put yourself out there and like hear their ideas because you're curious. So that can be a good element. Very cool. Well, um, these guys are in here for recess. Uh, if you guys wouldn't mind, we're gonna let them run, go have the end of their recess and lunch. And then um, if, if we could have a teacher recap, that would be, that would be really cool. Um, and amazing job you guys did explaining to us sort of different strategies to think about and getting kind of the experience perspective. You're going to make a wonderful teacher, I'm sure of it. And if you want to get into the international school system, you've got a couple of uh, connections here. Thriving Mormon community here in Bogota, Colombia. And there's pockets all over uh, South America for that as well. So something to think about. Thank you guys very much. You guys, if you want to say goodbye, and then, uh... Bye! And then run up to recess. If you guys have any problems getting into lunch, then, uh, you still have 15 minutes. Go straight to lunch. Go straight to lunch. <laughs> yeah, go. Cool. I thought we have two. Corre, 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 Are you corre, sure? Corre. I think I have one. Yeah, kind of. That'll be fine. Okay. Um... So we'll step forward and just like, uh, I, I really kind of got a lot out of this um, idea of one, the using different kind of resources and some new ideas that I'm kind of taking away are um, one, not just have the multiple formats of media for the kids to address, um, but have them go find things to bring into the circle. Yeah. I thought that was a, a really cool aspect. The inviting someone to the circle. Uh, we had people come observe the circles. We had a lot of that, but we didn't have any of those people jumping into the circles. So that, that would have been a, another cool format. Yeah, to and that's what to start with is your administrators. Yeah. They love doing this. It gives them a different interaction with kids. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that also brings them down to more on a human level. I think one of the most profound moments that we had in one of our Socratic circles in here was when one of my classmates flat out like disagreed, totally tore into our principal's like viewpoint and said why my purse was better and it was just a really interesting moment but it showed that in a Socratic circle everyone is on the same level. Yeah. I thought that, that was a really interesting thing and I really thought that it opened up um, the kids to start talking to feel more comfortable in their own skin. Because when you have um, something like that it not only bleeds into Socratic circles but like just in general when people have ideas about classes and about things they're going over, I mean, they're more likely to share because they've had that experience where, like, they shared what they thought and they weren't reprimanded or they weren't um, told, well, you're wrong or something like that. So in this democratizing of the thinking and talking space, do, do you all find that some of your classmates 
are um, kind of flower in those moments? Because a couple of the kids that you were just talking to are not your super contributors in class. But when they got into that circle environment and it was this social experience, um, I mean, one of these students, we just like couldn't believe the input we were getting. I mean, it was complete literary analysis at a level that we weren't finding at any other time, you know, of the day. Do you guys find that in your circles? Is that is that a factor? Or? Hey, I want to jump in here a second because I'm going to tell a story on Michaela. Um, after the first circle, she talked to me a little bit. So I, I felt like I talked a little too much there. And different teachers have different views on this. I said, no, you didn't. We just got to get the others to talk more. It's not your problem that the others didn't talk. We're going to get the others contributing more. That's my uh, perspective on this. Other people have different perspectives on this. Here's a, here is a low-risk way to get the student involved. It's everybody needs to ask a question. Something that they didn't understand. Something that research did. Uh, uh, perplexed them. Uh, interested them, but they didn't have the answer. When they start asking their classmates those questions, they you still have some kids that just want. And that's where sometimes as a, as a teacher you do, what do you think of that? Or, Unfortunately, you still have to decide. Yeah, well, I, I, I did like in your article that you mentioned the, the balancing of the introverts and, and the extroverts. That, you know, we, we had a couple of kids who would go into the circle and they would have the most amazing annotated notes, color coded in five different ways, notations all over the place, and they wouldn't speak in the circle. So we, we kind of had to come up with strategies of like, okay, well, you know, sometimes maybe we'll start with a quick go around, or sometimes we'll start with spot questions, but something to kind of get those kids involved as well. Because hey, just another just another tactic. These two, these two sitting right here are real good at saying, um, what do you think? They know who the quiet ones are, and they exercise a lot of leadership, and they start pushing those kids to speak up. Yeah. And that's better than me saying something. Yeah. Very yeah, cool. And that goes back yeah. to what you were talking about earlier about the those three students who kind of become like the manager of the circle. You said you wanted to talk about whether or not a teacher was necessary. I think that whether or not the teacher is there, someone is going to take over the role. I think it's just human. As long as you have, like Mr. Sherman mentioned in his blog, is about having like a balance of introverts and extroverts. As long as you have that balance, one of the extroverts is going to step up and say, okay guys, this is what we're gonna talk about. Who wants to start? Would you, um, do, you haven't spoken much. Do you have anything that you would like to say on this matter? Do you have questions? What's still confusing about this topic? I think that even if a teacher's not there, there's still going to be someone who kind of assumes the teacher will. Mm. Now, what and, is your, um, sorry, go ahead. Oh. Uh, well, I was just going to say that, you know, it's my belief that lack of participation is kind of the poison of the traditional classroom because I feel like um, we've gotten better about this over the years, implementing um, new strategies to get people more involved and in, getting people who wouldn't normally um, speak up during class to speak up because if it's actually coming out of your own mouth, you're more adept to remember it later when you're being tested on the topics. I wanted to know a little bit about, I mean, how do you feel this empowers you of your learning? Like the comfort zone that is established, does it allow you to comprehend or deepen your learning throughout the Socratic circle? Because I find that for some of my students, it's hard to speak up and have their own voice. They're third graders, so they're pretty young, and, it, and they're learning to participate and be okay with taking a risk 
on whatever they're saying. So how would you feel this would reflect on your own experience? Um, we never did Socratic circles in elementary school or anything like that. <laughs> but uh, personally, um, I think offering maybe an incentive to kids who like spoke up would help. I mean, I know it kind of sounds uh, weird, but like candy or something. <laughs> I know if someone if someone had told me in elementary school, they would give me a talking. You can bet that I would share something uh, interesting. <laughs> I'm just saying. I, yeah, I really um, I have like I said, I've been reading a lot about this topic, and I really I think that what was pretty effective for some of the people who have been. Um, having these problems with elementary school students is kind of like um, you know how when you were kids you had a line leader who like led the line as you were walking down there was someone who was like assigned to that having like a case manager like someone who um, is in charge of it who wouldn't normally be the person who would talk the most but they're the person who's uh, assigned to like start it and to end it and they um, that way they're kind of forced to do it but I think like the more that students are kind of forced into situations, the more comfortable with them they become. Mm. Well, what, what we're I, trying I'll to tell you, I have this. Uh, That's a good one. This yeah. is fascinating. Listen to these guys talk about this. Uh, <laughs> I had a couple students in a Socratic circle this year, and, and they didn't like each other, and, and they, they they kind of were focused on disputing what one another said. And so, I made a point of talking to them individually and saying, "Hey, your mission is to get over that." personal animosity and, and they've all passed it. And both of them took that on as a, as a project and they did really well. So I would say that forming uh, relationships, having conversations with those shy kids, hey, I'd really be I'm really excited if you asked a question. Just keep encouraging them individually away from the other students. I think that, that can have great... Well, we tried to kind of... Our strategies for that were kind of twofold. Yep. One was to front load the, the quiet ones, like make sure they had really strong content to talk about before they went in and actually practice like okay how are you going to talk about this how are you going to address it how are you going to pose this question and then the second part was that the documentation going around in the outer circle um, really covered you know all these different aspects of the conversation some kids were just mapping and while when they gave their feedback after the circle ended um, they weren't allowed to talk about what people did. They couldn't say like, well, so-and-so was talking too much and so-and-so didn't talk. They could only talk about content, what was said, and give feedback on that. But in that feedback, that's where you know people really felt the, the social reward of being a full participant in the circle without having sort of the extrinsic motivators. Although, <laughs> maybe, we'll, we'll try the candy. We'll try the candy. Something that I really found effective about the um, Socratic circles in here is that uh, Mr. Storman gives us a exit ticket as well that we're to fill out, and that's what the outer circle does. But there's also questions for the inner circle to answer, and one of those questions is, "What did you contribute to the circle?" And I don't know about like everyone in the class, but I know for me personally that that was another motivator because you know that the teacher's going to be reading this and whether or not they noticed if you said anything in the circle, they're going to notice what you write. And um, I think that that's kind of a way to kind of hold yourself accountable and to kind of force an amount of responsibility to say, this was exactly what I did in the circle. And it doesn't address anything about what you prepared because there's a different section on that. Did you prepare well for the circle? But it addresses 
what actually happened in the circle. Did you say anything? Did you ask questions? Did you establish a viewpoint? And I thought that, that was a really um, great, like, intrinsic motivator for me was I want to have stuff to write down here. And um, I know that personally I write a journal every night, and I think that that was another thing that really helped me uh, through this was just, um, you know, um, I write every night about what happened during the day, and I found that my entries during the Socratic Circle times were longer because it was really something that interests me. And they weren't topics that I had been interested in beforehand, but after the Socratic Circle, I was like, you know, I want to learn more a little bit about this. And it was those entries were two, three times longer than the entries that I had on normal days where, yeah, you know, I went to school versus, you know, today I established my viewpoint and I supported it. And I thought that that was a really interesting, like, self-reflection I had on, like, my own personal changes during this. No, well, that makes sense. Anyway. I have to go though. I'm sorry. Uh, I have to get going. We have uh, kids to pick sure. up and in yeah. the cafeteria. So, sorry, guys. So it was a pleasure to we'll, see you. Thank you for having us. We'll, we'll come to a general closing. I, I do want to recap and just kind of say, like, all the things you guys are talking about are completely fascinating to us because it, it's verifying a lot of theoretical things we've read about. But since we're just starting the practice of it, it's really cool to hear it from the voices of the people that have actually been in the circle. Yeah, go ahead. When she said right there, I, I got goosebumps by what she was saying. Because that's what you're trying to do in the classroom right there. What's, what she, what, what's going on with Michaela and Will, it, just, it gives me tremendous validation to continue these Socratic circles. Because I consider myself an um, engaging lecturer. But that's nothing compared to this. This this is nothing compared to self-directed learning. And when she says that that made curious to learn more, important to say that that's that's when you're striking gold. Very cool. Very cool. Well, uh, thank you, Will. Thank you, Michaela. Um, I, I don't know if I need uh, your permission, but uh, we were going to put this on um, YouTube. If that's okay. Um, yeah, that's fine. Okay. Uh, and I'll, I'll send you guys the link to this interview. Um, well, I'll send that to you this afternoon, but then as we package the whole podcast, I'll send you those those segments as well. A, a so real, gonna, yeah, a no, real pleasure to, to hear your feedback and everything. Thank you very much for uh, for spending the time with us. And, uh, for it's a pleasure. Yeah. James, I'll be in touch by email. Um, okay, so these are endorsements. It's like really quick, 30-second to a minute uh, recommendations. On this theme, I immediately thought of Paulo Freire, which Aaron Kuntz, a professor from University of Alabama, introduced us to. And he talks a lot about the use of language and empowerment of the oppressed. And um, I like this quote, freedom is acquired by conquest, not by gift. And this idea of we're creating uh, students with agency of language that they, they question things. And I'll pass this now on to Rebecca. Um, I just love the book because it gives you tips on how the kids can succeed. And they're very down-to-earth things that, that anybody can do. And they're so simple sometimes that you think, why didn't I think of that before? <laughs> it's good to have the book then. All right, hold on. Um, so this is a couple. These are a couple of strategies that Chris and I developed. These are storyboards uh, for kids to plan out their seeds 
um, and then start talking about them. So for some of them, it's easier to find detail in sketching and then stretching out for the writing process. Yeah, I really like this particular picture right here with the X in the eyes. And, the <laughs> and this idea of them designing it, not just drawing on the board, but using the post-its. If they mess up, they, they perfect the actual model before they go into writing, all the pre-thinking that goes into that, and front-loading cognition so that when they do go to write, they've got all of these things already mapped out in their mind. So this is a thinking routine in which close observation is a precursor to close reading. And in the second grade classroom, we're studying economics with some vocabulary like consumer, producer, goods, and services. And the thinking routine is called, What Makes You Say That? And so there are some moderating questions to help the students go deeper in their observations and analyses of this illustration related to those economic themes. So a content area mixed with really trying to get their thinking visible and then taking some of that visible thinking, you can classify that and do some other things with the student work. Yeah, and this really goes with the standard that we were talking about in Lindsay's class, like character motivation. Like, what are they doing? How are they doing it? Why are they doing it? That kind of, that kind of thinking. What's the purpose? What makes you say here. that? Yeah. It says here. But it's fine, though, because she looks thirsty. <laughs> this one is a video on the teaching channel featuring a high school teacher in Mountain View, California. And she is uh, using Socratic circles or Socratic uh, seminars, as she calls them. Uh, to conduct poetry studies. So she has the kids, kind of what we did here, go through a chapter or a poem by a specific author and then have it have the circle prepared for it and discuss. So she is sharing her experience conducting those circles and sharing also her tips and kind of saying what has been working for her and what hasn't. Great, great resource. I, I like the part in this video where she talks about the fear, like right when you start the circle and silence falls upon the students. Yeah. <laughs> like, what do you do as a teacher? And, and of course, all of it's connecting to our common core standards as well. So that uh, is the first half, and I know people are like jumping out of their seats to get out of here. Um, we'll do the second half next week, and if anybody wants to participate in that, uh, please come back. I'll send the schedule out. They'll be really short. 15-minute interview. That wraps up our Journey 3 Socratic Circles. We'd love to hear your comments on our Facebook page, Journeys in Podcasting. Our next topic will be student inquiry, especially in how coupled with essential questions it relates to framing units of study. We're always looking for contributors, so contact us and join us. Our next session of discussions will be mid-January after the break. We'll see you then. Bye-bye.